0: The text for our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We will read verses 1 through 8. John 3, 1 through 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, is spirit do not marvel that I said to you you must be born again the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes so is everyone who is born of the spirit all right I'd like to call our kids down all right well the verses that we just read tell us a very interesting story a man named Nicodemus came to see Jesus one night Nicodemus was a leader for people in Israel, and he came to see Jesus at nighttime so that no one would see him talking to Jesus. The other leaders didn't like Jesus, and Nicodemus didn't want anyone to see him asking questions. He was a leader. He's supposed to already know all the answers. Jesus tells Nicodemus something that he thought was very strange. Jesus said to him that the only way the person can go to heaven is if he is born a second time. How can that happen? Well, Nicodemus thought the same thing. He said to Jesus, I'm already an old man. How can I make myself go, go back inside my mom's belly to be born again? And Jesus then explained what he meant. To get to heaven, you have to be born as a part of it. What does that mean? We've Talked about this before. Cows have baby cows. Sheep have baby sheep. Your mom and dad, I hate to break it to you, are sinners. And that means you were born a baby sinner. And to go to heaven, you have to be born not by your mom, but by God's Spirit. Let me ask you some questions. Why do you speak in English and not in French or Chinese? Why are your eyes and your hair the color that they are? Because those things came from your parents. Why are you a sinner? Because that came from your parents too. A Christian is a person who loves God, who wants to serve him, who loves God's word and wants to obey it. And those things don't come from being born by your mom. They come by being born again by God's spirit. Now, I know that seems like it's kind of hard to understand, and Jesus actually says so. He says it's like the wind. You hear the wind blowing. You can feel the breeze. You see the trees moving. But you don't know where the wind came from or where it's going. God's Spirit works the same way. Being born again isn't something you can do to yourself. It's like when you were born the first time. You didn't do it. You didn't even know it was happening. You only realize later when you're old enough to understand it, hey, I was born. For children of Christian parents, children who were baptized as babies, we believe that the new birth is something that God did to you when you were baptized, or maybe even when you were still in your mom's tummy. The life of God's Spirit is like a seed inside you that grows as you grow and are taught about God. Have you ever seen an acorn? You know what an acorn is? seed about that big an acorn is very small but acorns grow into oak trees and oak trees are very very big trees everything that the oak will one day be when it is this wide and 100 foot tall is inside that little acorn as you grow you learn to walk and talk you learn to read and write and these are all things that are inside you that grow out of you as you grow As you grow as Christian children, you learn about God, you learn about sin, you learn about Jesus dying for your sins, you learn how important it is to read the Bible, that you need to come to church, you need to go to Sunday school. When you get a little older, you'll begin to go to catechism class, and one day you'll be confirmed like our three young people will be next Sunday. God has given you a very great gift He gave you to Christian parents who presented you to God to be baptized when you were babies. Even then, before you could understand what was going on, you were beginning life as a Christian. One day, you'll be big enough to work, to make your own meals. You'll be able to care for yourself. One day, you'll understand what your baptism meant for you. And you'll be able to do for yourself the things that your parents or your Sunday school teachers do for you now. And you can thank God that you were born, not just as part of a trip or part of America, a citizen, but that you were born also as a citizen of heaven. We're going to pray, and then you can return to your seats. O oh, Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our subject this morning is the new birth or regeneration, and I'm going to use the terms new birth and regeneration interchangeably this morning. Regeneration is a picture word. It means second birth, a a new beginning of life. That's why the Bible uses resurrection or creation or birth as illustrations for it. Let's first give a concise definition of the word. Regeneration is that supernatural act of god whereby a new and divine life is imparted to the person who is spiritually dead and that from the incorruptible seed of god and it is made fruitful by the infinite power of the spirit so we have to begin by realizing that we are all dead in adam this is what we're taught in ephesians 2:1 and you who made alive he made alive who were dead in sins and trespasses. Now this means that first of all, we are separated from God in the language of Ephesians 4.18, alienated from the life of God. Secondly, we are spiritually oblivious to all spiritual things and destitute of all true feeling. We are unaware that we are heavily laden because we are in our element in sin. You put a great big juicy medium rare steak in front of a corpse and you will get no response. A corpse has no capacity for eating. Put the glories of God's covenant before a spiritual corpse, and you will get no response. The unregenerate have no relish, no desire for the spiritual and heavenly things. Thirdly, we are incapable of any act of true life. Acknowledging, as the Scripture does, that we are dead in sins and trespasses prior to the new birth, it should go without saying that we are incapable of any act of true life. In the words of Paul, we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3.5 Now Christ's conversation with Nicodemus provides us with a theology of regeneration in very crystallized form. This passage is crucial to a biblical understanding of the doctrine of the new birth. From Christ's teaching we can extract four major components of the doctrine of regeneration. I know I always do three points. This morning we're doing four. And they are as follows. Number one, the source of the new birth. Second, the nature of the new birth. Third, the necessity of the new birth. And fourthly, the method of the new birth. And we will look at these in turn. First, the source of the new birth. Now, Jesus' own words are, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've ever done any word studies on this verse, you may know that the word rendered again is purposely ambiguous in the Greek. It can be translated either again or even from above. And We're not forced to choose one or the other word. Both are intended. Unlike your first birth, the new birth is a vertical matter. It comes from above. Now, what does that even mean? Well, it means that regeneration is supernatural as opposed to merely natural. It's something miraculous. It's something heavenly. It isn't commonplace or biological. Later in this conversation, Jesus says, If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Regeneration is a heavenly thing. And in order to express something supernatural in language that men can understand, Christ chose the image of birth to communicate something divine to our finite minds. Because regeneration is a miracle, it is a new birth, a new creation, a resurrection from the dead, only God can regenerate. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, reads, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Psalm 100 verse 3 reads, It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture is his doing. He has made us so, not we ourselves. In the prologue to his gospel, John argues the same way, he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth is not a product of human lineage, nor is it the result of human relationship, nor is it the result of a human decision. Man is born of God. The preposition of tells us the source or the origin. People are not born again. They are not regenerated as a result of something they do, but solely by the working of God's will and God's power man's will has no part in it to paraphrase augustus toplady the author of the hymn rock of ages your your will can't even rid you of a toothache but we're supposed to believe that your will is the arbiter of the new birth please what baby ever conceived and bore itself Secondly, the nature of the new birth. What is the nature of the new birth? Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus was puzzled by the nature of the new birth. It's obvious by his question that he understood regeneration in terms of the birth process. Jesus uses a word that refers to the concept of generational descent. In other words, Jesus is not focusing on the experience of birth, but on the fact that the father's nature is passed on to his child. What happens in the new birth? What kind of birth is it? It's a birth in which the divine nature is imparted into the soul. Jesus said that your first birth reproduced in you the nature of your parents. That's what is meant by the words, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The second birth, regeneration, imparts within you a spiritual nature. That's what is meant by the words, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In the same way that children possess the nature of their parents, God's children possess a new nature, a spiritual and divine nature, which they are given when they are born again. It's clear then from this argument that regeneration is something supernatural. It's something which only the Holy Spirit can do in the human heart. Lord's Day 33 of our Catechism teaches us that conversion consists of two parts. The mortification of the old and the quickening of the new. Mortification of the old man is sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and to flee from them. And quickening of the new man is a sincere joy of heart through Christ with love and delight to live according to the will of God and all good works. Our regeneration and communion with Christ consists in conformity with these two public acts of Christ. Conformity to His death in the mortification of the body of sin and conformity to his resurrection in a newness of life by quickening grace. Thirdly, the necessity of the new birth. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Regeneration is a necessity because all men are born in original sin. No one can be saved without the new birth. The Greek word translated must is a word that signifies logical necessity. Jesus is saying, by using a term so strong, He's saying that regeneration is absolutely necessary for salvation. Now notice that Jesus doesn't tell Nicodemus to go do anything in order to be born again. You must be born again is not a command to go do something. It's a simple statement of fact. It's, this is an indicative, a, a declarative sentence, not an imperative sentence. It's like when Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. He's not telling us to get ourselves all salty, he's simply stating fact. You are salt. We can easily summarize the whole passage like this Regeneration is not something that any man can do because flesh can only produce flesh, it is a work of God's Spirit who like the wind blows where and when it pleases. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, regeneration is a necessity, but neither you nor any other man can cause it to happen. Even if you could think of a way to return to your mother's womb, only God can perform this work. Think of the story of the rich young ruler that we read earlier in Matthew 19. After the man goes away crestfallen because Jesus won't let him claim a right to salvation by his own works, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples reply, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. The text tells us that the salvation of a soul is only possible for God. And it also tells us that by nature, we rely on our own works, but salvation is impossible by works. Regeneration, which is the beginning, the inauguration of the life of salvation, is therefore a miracle. This passage, if read honestly, proves to be the the bullet in the brain of Arminianism. The context, the story of the rich young ruler, right? The disciples clearly understood that Jesus was referring to the self-sufficiency as riches. In fact, this figure, the rich young ruler, was a religious figure. And the disciples understood that Jesus was referring to the riches of personal piousness. Now, a lot of strange speculation has been done about this eye of the needle. I saw someone try to render it cable instead of camel, as if threading a a cable through a needle was any easier than putting a camel through it. There's a strange story about an imaginary gate into Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle. And I guess the the gate was somewhat like our way stations for semis. They regulated the weight of the camel's lading. Now, I reject that theory simply because it requires you to know first-century Jewish architecture recorded outside of Scripture in order to understand something that's in Scripture. But more importantly, the idea is clearly wrong because it misses the absoluteness of the impossibility. A camel could still get through the eye, even with a significant load. It just couldn't be overloaded. How does that convey the idea of impossibility? The disciples' response tells us that Jesus was not referring to material wealth. If he had meant material wealth, who then can be saved doesn't make any sense because not everybody is rich. The disciples clearly understood that Jesus was including everyone in that statement. The point Jesus makes as is evidenced by the disciples' response, is not how much money you can have before it becomes a hindrance to entering heaven. The point is that salvation is of the Lord, and unless God does what is impossible for men, it doesn't get done. End of story. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, with men it is difficult, or with men it requires sincere effort, or with men it hinges on their decision. No, my friends, this is as blunt direct, and to the point as language can can express it. It is impossible. It only means one thing. If God doesn't save you, you don't get saved. If God doesn't regenerate you, you don't get regenerated. Question five of our catechism tells us that we are all prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. Man by nature has as much ability to love God as a trout does to drive a car. Now one of the most widely quoted sayings also happens to be one of the most foolish, is that God helps those who help themselves. It's dead wrong, and for a couple of very important reasons. First of all, it assumes that sinners want to be saved from their sins. Who wants to be saved from that which he loves? And who hates sin but one who has already been regenerated? I mean, Can you imagine walking into the maternity ward, addressing the unborn babies? If you would like to be born, raise your hand. Now repeat after me, I accept this man and woman as my parents and hereby give birth to myself. That's less ridiculous, frankly, than the Arminian evangelist that tells people, raise your hand and repeat after me, I'm born again by my own decision. Secondly, the saying assumes that anyone can actually help himself, and scripture bluntly denies that. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Now when we hear people say, God helps those who help themselves, You know that what they mean is that you first have to do your part, and then God will see that you're serious, and then he'll jump in and give you a hand. Now, the common usage, actually, of that saying is nowhere near the original meaning. The saying originated with a Greek philosopher named Diogenes of Sinope, also known as Diogenes the Cynic. Greek cynics were characterized by their belief in self-sufficiency. And Diogenes' meaning was that people do things for themselves and then foolishly give an imaginary God the credit for what they have actually done. God helps those who help themselves, you know, with an eye roll, as you say it. As we look at our passage, I want you to think of the expressions used to describe salvation. Inherit the kingdom of heaven. Enter the kingdom of God. We say things like, be saved. We have here in this passage what appears to me to be the strongest scriptural statement of the doctrine of inability. That is, that unregenerate man has no ability to do anything, however small, tending to his own salvation. Telling the unregenerate to believe savingly upon Christ is like telling a trout to drive a car. Any way you choose to phrase it, inherit the kingdom of heaven, enter the kingdom of God, be saved. Christ has one response. With men, it is impossible It is impossible for man to do anything tending to his own salvation. And therefore, God, with whom all things are possible, must do it. The good news is that Christ has done all righteousness for God's people. Their salvation hinges on nothing that they have done, will do, or can do. Now, I anticipate an objection. Someone will say, look, telling people about the necessity of being born again in one breath, then that they're utterly helpless to produce this work in their own soul in the next breath is self-defeating or self-contradictory. I don't think there's anything self-contradictory about telling a man in prison for embezzlement that he shouldn't write bad checks. That misses the whole point of Jesus' argument. The point of Jesus' statement was to expose the fallacy of trusting in your own efforts for salvation. If devotion to law-keeping could save a person, then Nicodemus and the rich young ruler had it in the bag. In opposition to this, Jesus tells them that no one is saved by personal achievements, family history, social status, or religious devotion. The new birth comes by faith in Christ. And faith only comes by the grace of God. Finally, the method of the new birth. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3.8 Now this verse handles three principles with regard to the doctrine of regeneration. Number one, the sovereignty of God in regeneration. The wind blows where it wishes. In the same way that the wind blows, unobstructed by political, racial, or cultural hindrances, God's spirit cannot be frustrated in his regenerating work. Secondly, regeneration is a divine mystery. You do not know where it comes from and where it is going. To say that regeneration is a divine mystery is to say that there's more to it than we can understand. And this accounts... For the variety of explanations or experiences we all have with regard to our own conversion. Uh, historically, the majority of Christians were born into Christian homes, baptized as babies, grew up, never knowing a time when they did not love God. Others have come from false religions, or from atheism, or from lives of uh, immorality and crime. I'll say it again, to say that regeneration is a divine mystery is to say that there's more to it than we can understand. And that should prompt a spirit of reverence, awe, and worship. But thirdly, everyone who is born again is born again in exactly the same way. Salvation by God's grace through the direct work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. That's the method which Scripture teaches. And that is the only method that makes sense of the various circumstances in which sinners are found. Whether one was an Old Testament saint under the administration of the covenant of grace of the Old Testament, whether one has all the privileges of New Testament Christianity available to him, whether one is a child who dies in infancy, or one who is developmentally or mentally challenged, one who is born in an unevangelized heathen nation. This is the only way ordained of God for salvation, and it fits like a key fits a lock for each of those cases. Everyone who is regenerated is regenerated in exactly the same way by a sovereign and mysterious operation of God's Spirit within the human soul. The lesson is this God is the source of the new birth. We are told in James chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Brought forth, that's another way of saying gave birth to. Therefore, this is speaking of the new birth. And James is saying that the new birth is a sovereign act of God's will. It is wrought immediately by God, and yet it is mediated through His word. And that warning, do not be deceived, tells us that men are very likely to imagine that the new birth is their own handiwork and that their will deserves credit for it. No, every perfect gift comes from God, and regeneration is no exception. Salvation in all of its constituent parts is God's work. As we read in Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. This means that regeneration is immediate. God doesn't use the work of the sinner on the one hand or the gospel preacher's work on the other hand. Faith is the gift of God. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe in Him. For the sake of Christ, it has been granted to us to believe in Him. The Greek word translated granted derives from a root word which literally means favor that cancels. It's used of God giving His grace to pardon. It is done freely and is therefore not based on any merit in the one receiving forgiveness. The second century church father Irenaeus wrote, God cannot be known without God. He's not referring to the revelation of the Bible. He's saying that a saving knowledge of God begins with God. We cannot begin that process. As Christ said, those who are born of the Spirit are like the wind. God's Spirit blows where He wills. We see that it blows, we feel it, but it remains a mystery, which God alone understands. We can marvel at the provisions of grace, and that's all we can do, is marvel at the provisions of grace made available to us in the finished work of Christ. The 3rd century theological uh, professor Clement of Alexandria wrote, The heavenly and truly divine love comes to men thus, When in the soul itself the spark of true goodness, kindled in the soul by the divine word, he's referring to Christ, is able to burst forth into flame. So we see Clement here arguing to pagan Greeks, mind you, that the human ability to respond to God's grace comes from God Himself simultaneously with the grace. The true spark of goodness is kindled by Christ. The 4th century theologian Gregory of Nazianzus eloquently describes the loving response to God's grace that the new birth creates. He writes, If you have poured out upon God the whole of your love, if you have not two objects of desire, both the passing and the abiding, both the visible and the invisible, Then you have been so pierced by the arrow of election and have so learned the beauty of the bridegroom that you too can say with the bridal song, you are sweetness and altogether loveliness. Notice that he gives a test, so to speak, for your assurance of salvation. Can one be sensibly aware of the greatness of his own sin and misery and of the greatness of God's provision in Christ for the sin and misery and not express it in gratitude and love? Can you say that you are enthralled by the beauty and the glory of God's plan of salvation? If we have indeed what has been called the the life of God in the soul of a man, it will manifest itself naturally in a life of loving communion with God. I suppose we've all heard of the pioneer missionary St. Patrick. He described his own conversion in these very telling words. I, once rustic, exiled, unlearned, who does not know how to provide for the future, this at least I know most certainly, that I was like a stone lying in the deep mire, and he that is mighty came and in his mercy lifted me up and raised me aloft and placed me on top of a wall. Patrick envisions himself like an inanimate stone lying in the mud, This is a brilliant image. It illustrates perfectly man's inability to do anything about his spiritual condition. It illustrates man's deadness in sins and trespasses. A stone can no more lift itself out of the mud than it can understand its own filthy condition. Now, these quotes, I hope, show us that though centuries separate us from our forefathers in the faith, our experience of God's grace is one and the same. We should find it very encouraging to read of a Christian conversion from 1,700 or 1,800 years ago and completely resonate with the language of being sought by God and raised into newness of life. Let us pray.